This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This episode is dropping on the Friday of GABF, and so uh, to celebrate that, uh, we've got a fantastic special episode of the Craft Beer and Bring podcast. Uh, we're sitting out here in Golden, Colorado, uh, with Cannonball Creek Brewing, Jonathan Lee, Brian Hutch Hutchison. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks Thank for you. having Thanks us. Thanks for having us, man. You are prepping right now. We're recording this a week early, so when people hear this, it'll be time shifted. Um, you are Your tanks are full. You're pulling beers off, trying to get stuff ready, uh, because next week is a big week for you guys. Um, and you know, as I was doing some research for this, obviously, I've been here a bunch of times. It's, it's not that far for me. Uh, I was just here two weeks ago with Joe Stang, because Stan Hieronymus was like, you've got to go there and try this specific Project Alpha beer. We came down here, and of course... Uh, two days after he uh, he had it here at the brewery, it wasn't here. Um, you know, Cannibal Creek is one of those, if you know, you know, breweries. It's, uh, you know, amongst brewers, the respect is deep. Um, you guys, uh, you guys have won a GABF medal every year of your existence. So far. Yeah. I got some wood to knock on right here, but uh, yeah. I'm mm -hmm. not going to try to jinx anything here. And you've win in great categories. And I shouldn't just, we shouldn't just focus on winning. You all make really compelling beers, particularly compelling hoppy beers. We're going to talk about how you build that kind of strategy. Uh, you make great pale ales. You make great session IPAs. We're going to talk about brewing uh, small hoppy beers because finding that kind of balance in smaller hoppy beers is a really delicate thing. You all do it artfully, beautifully. Uh, we're going to talk about all of those things. But before we do that, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, g and Chiller's new micro-channel condensers. g and micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks, along with lower global warming potential. g and Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design, while developing a more efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact G&D Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, still emptying those overflowing waste bins full of low fills, crushed and damaged cans, or undercarbonated beer every canning day, it's time to fill like a pro. Email contact us at probrew.com for more information on ProFill can fillers from ProBrew. ProFill can fillers use rotary true counter-pressure gravity filling and seaming technology to run at speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute with less than 30 parts per billion DO pickup and less than 1% product waste at the filler. Stop wasting perfectly good beer. Email ProBrew at contactus at probrew.com today. ProBrew is a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a ProMock brand. All right. Hutch, why don't you give us the uh, the background story on Cannonball Creek? Uh, what uh, what what's your arc through brewing look like, and what uh, led you here? I know you started the brewery with a partner, and Jonathan's been involved from the from the very start of that. So, and and finding that kind of longevity amongst a team in brewing is is really nice. It's uh, it's been a while here, but give me that arc uh, and, and what led you out here. Sure. Um, like pretty much everybody, I did start with a, a pretty um, expensive, extensive homebrew background. Um, but my first professional brewing job was at Mountain Sun Pubs up in Boulder. And I worked with them for about nine years. And I just started off uh, driving the truck and delivering kegs and doing that kind of thing and just kind of learned uh, quite a bit there as I worked my way up through their system. 
Um, yeah, worked there for about nine and a half years. Uh, helped to open the Vine Street Pub in Denver prior to uh, opening up Cannonball Creek. I met Jason Stengel, who's my business partner uh, at Mountain Sun. He actually trained me to, to drive the truck and deliver kegs. <laughs> and um, so we had begun to start talking about opening up our own place as we were both working there. Um, and then met Jonathan um, several years into it. I don't, I don't remember how many years you worked there, but... Um, uh, two or three. Yeah. And Jonathan had actually left prior to myself and Jason leaving Mountain Sun. But as we were coming up with a business plan for this place and thinking about it, we actually were, were thinking about the fact that we needed a really, really good uh, bar manager and Jonathan's background, and he can tell you more about that um, if you're interested. But uh, he worked for some craft beer bars uh, in Austin, uh, one in particular. And so we knew he had that background. We also knew he had the personality that we were looking for. Um, and so we kept talking about it and saying, we need somebody like him. We've got to find like our Jonathan in order to do this. And I think finally one day over a couple of beers, I, I said to Jason, you know, like, let's just call him and ask him if he wants to move <laughs> sure, back here, sure. <laughs> you know, and, and it worked. Um, so him and I had a couple of phone conversations and one of his stipulations for coming back and, and helping us with this was that he wanted to be back in boots and working in the brewery within a year or so. And I said, great, you know, um, cause he had worked as a brewer for us at, at Mountain Sun yeah. and, um, had no problem with that, but we felt like we really wanted his front of the house skills as well. Um, so that was kind of our deal that we had together and, uh, yeah, the rest was history. He came out here and, uh, we've all been here since day one. What's your background, Jonathan? I mean, like Hutch, like so many of us, homebrew nerd. Um, I actually started, well, I started back a house, then front of house, before I ever got into the brewery. My first job was at a brew pub in 2002, first in the kitchen, slinging food and doing uh, beer pairings and stuff. Yeah. Um, it's funny, that's, and that's then, Tony Lawrence's story and, from Boneyard, too. <laughs> Starting um, in the kitchen. Yep. And then... Uh, Worked my way up, waiting for yeah. a bar spot, and got one. And then was the bar manager, beer buyer um, at a pub in Austin. Still homebrewing the whole time. What pub? It was called the Dog and Duck. Like okay. so many '90s uh, sure. beer bars, it's gone now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, awesome place. It was probably there for twenty, at least twenty-five years. Um, and then moved up to Colorado, and was looking to get out from behind the bar and into the brewery, and got hired on at Mountain Sun. And then, like Hutch said, after a couple of years, Amanda, my wife, and I uh, decided that we were going to take off and find the next place. So we did the van thing before the van life was a wow. thing. Yeah, it was. We weren't in a Sprinter. We were in a '94 Dodge Caravan um, with <laughs> yeah. us, us at a hundred-pound German Shepherd. But yeah, so we took off and started scouting around and um, narrowed it down to a few places to live. But then, right around that time, got the phone call from Hutch and. Turned the van around, came back. Sure, sure. Been here since. So you guys start thinking about, well, hey, let's launch a new brewery. Um, you know, even then, even that time, what, 2012-ish or so, um, there were quite a few breweries. And, and I mean, even then, I remember people crying about there were already too many craft breweries. Sure. It's so nostalgic thinking about that now that we're at 9,000 breweries that then with less than 2,000, you know, we were already crying about too many. You know, you know, but but creating an identity for for Cannonball Creek uh, that was different and apart from uh, some of the other beer, uh, breweries around here uh, had you know, had to be an important thing. How did you all start defining that and what what Cannonball Creek would be, what beers you make, and uh, you know, and what the brand would stand for? 
Sure. Um, from day one, and this is a, a controversial opinion, particularly in business and the brewing business, but from day one, Jason and I knew that we wanted to to brew the beers that we wanted to drink and, and not necessarily just try to do everything that everybody wanted out there or that we perceived the entire customer base to want. Um, we figured if we were passionate about what we did, that that would, that would come through um, in, in the beers and that people would respect that and enjoy it. Um, so that, that was number one. And in particular, um, at that time, controversial. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you just hear a lot of people say that, that that's, that's, you can't just do that. You can't just brew what you want to brew. You have to brew for, for the audience. Right. And I hear it all yeah. the time. Um, yeah. that's not what we've done. Um, now and obviously there's, there's multiple arguments on that, right? Sure. Because, and I think you're right. If you're passionate, I mean, you look at someone like Cantillon mm -hmm. and for a time it looked like that was a failing strategy. And now that doesn't look like a failing strategy. It looks like a very smart strategy. Right. Time changes your perspective of how that works. And, and you know, that philosophy can both work and also not work. Yeah. It, it comes down not yeah. to the philosophy itself, but the way that you execute on it, isn't it? Exactly. And, and I think the one thing that is, uh, was really beneficial to us in embracing that philosophy was the fact that I wasn't just hyper-focused on Belgian beer or right. only brewing IPA or stout or something like that. There, I'm I'm a brewer that enjoys almost every style of beer and um, and am particularly passionate about several. Um, so immediately, even by following our passion, we're still offering a decent variety right. and we're not right. pigeonholing ourselves, you know. So that was important, I think, in it being successful. So what did you decide to focus on? At the beginning, um, I kind of have always been a hophead. And um, at Mountain Sun, I was starting to get influenced as I was working there by other brewers, particularly on the West Coast, uh, we'd get occasionally get IPAs out here from the likes of, you know, Pizza Port or Firestone Walker or something. And I just remember thinking at the time, well, this is what they're supposed to taste like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> sure. and, and I don't feel like anybody was really doing that in Colorado. Um, we were still kind of on that late 90s, mid 2000s. Yeah, yeah, you know, sweeter, yeah. you know, orange to, to light brown. Right bitter multi IPAs. And I was completely uninterested in making those beers at that point in time. And so I was doing my research as far as what was happening on the West Coast and just wanting to present a much more drinkable IPA that was crisper, the, that begged for, for drinking more as opposed to just struggling with the massive palate of some of those older styled IPAs. Sure. So that was a big part of it for sure. I uh, still had some fairly strong Belgian roots at that time and wanted to make sure that that was a part of what we did. Um, kind of trying to emulate some of those Trappist beers. That's fallen off a little bit for us. Um, it's still something that we do do, but at the time I'd say that was probably a focus because right when we started, I hadn't quite gotten into lagers. And part of that was the perception that maybe we couldn't pull them off here, that we wouldn't have time to brew them and blah, blah, blah. Um, and once we figured out, you know, that, that that was a possibility for us, that became a pretty strong focus as well. Sure, sure. And we should say that it is a small brew house oh, yeah. and small fermenters. Yeah. Um, very little beer leaves this tap room. You know, there are occasional kegs that get out there out into the market, but they're few and far between. There's no packaged beer that comes Correct. out of here. No. You all are very focused on serving your tap room, your audience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it fits the size of the brewery that we purchased too. You know, it's a seven barrel brew house. It's a pub system, you know? Um, so for us to do much more than that is really, I think, stretching its limits um, without implementing some significant changes. Plus, that was the business model to begin with anyway, was to focus on being a neighborhood tap room. And um, and that's really, we've, we've stayed that way the whole time. So, Sure. And that ties back in uh, to what you started with. You know, there's pros and cons to being the small 
there's pros and cons to not packaging, not being in the market. But one of the pros is we don't really have to worry about what's going on in the market. So when it comes to brewing the beer that we want to drink and then finding people who like the same kind of beer we do, finding basically enough people who like the same kind of beer we do to buy what we don't drink, (laughs) that, you know, like that, it's, we don't have, we're not, you know, sending out pallets of stuff that's just going to go die on a liquor store shelf. Right, right. Now, you know, nine years in, most brewers with that kind of metal count, with that kind of professional respect from other brewers in the industry, would have spun up a production brewery, would have gone into to packaging, would have certainly looked at an opportunity being bigger than just a taproom focus. What what has kept you guys small? I think it's definitely something we've considered, of course. How could you not have that conversation and think about it? And it's certainly... I would never say never on anything like that, but every time we really, and I I wouldn't say we've ever gotten close, but every time we analyze it critically, it just comes down to the lifestyle that that we live now and, you know, the ability to make the beers that we want to make. And both Jason and I, you know, live five miles up the road from here. And uh, one of the things I learned kind of going up through the ranks at, at Mountain Sun was I don't really enjoy managing a lot of people. I enjoy enjoy being in the brew house and I I still do. And so for me to step away from that would, uh, would require some significant motivation that I haven't really found yet. (laughs) That's a, that's a really smart approach, honestly. And, uh, it's one that we don't hear as much because America seems to prize that idea of growth above all else. But, uh, I think that it's a a smart thing, especially with uh, that kind of, experience in the career. It's exactly why we started our media business this way. My business partner and I came out of a 200 person media business and decided that that was not what we wanted for our own lifestyles and our own sanity and started this small business that has 12 employees that is much easier to manage, um, but that can still provide in the way that we need it to provide for us. And, uh, you know, it is definitely that lifestyle choice of trying to find and build the business that supports what you want to achieve in the world. No, that's, it's a remarkably smart, wise, and uh, uh, interesting approach. We'll see if you stick with it. Right. Uh, Because the temptation I imagine is always right there. I mean, well, and and honestly, like, especially when you've been doing something for a long time, I kind of joke about getting bored occasionally with, you know, what I'm doing and and thinking about, you know, other ideas. And sometimes that, that leads towards a potential growth plan, uh, but it hasn't gotten there yet. So we'll see. Sure. Sure. Well, let's, let's switch gears and start talking about uh, the way that you brew again, obviously, as I said at the top, you have received a lot of accolades for your hoppy beers and your smaller hoppy beers in particular. I want to talk about all of those things, but first looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough, think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out with old orchards, craft concentrate blends. Even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old Orchard is based in the greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City USA, and supplies craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, packaging beer can be a daunting task, but buying cans shouldn't be. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices in order quantities catered to craft. Think single truckloads and half-height pallets rather than million-can minimums. 
for a smooth packaging experience, also consider their ultra-compact single-operator canning machines. Pricing begins at $25,000 with a quick six- to eight-week lead time on most equipment. American Canning exists to help share your craft in cans. Learn more about their ecosystem of solutions at AmericanCanning.com. So let's talk about those beers. Um, you know, those, those hoppy beers, as, as you set out to brew those, you, as you mentioned, you're inspired by modern West coast iterations and that's exactly what you started brewing. Um, define that for me. What is, what is a, you know, a modern West coast inspired IPA look like? And, you know, within that kind of context, how did you start setting about building the kind of smoothness, but, and smooth bitterness and support for that hop character, uh, in some of these uh, IPAs? Sure. Um, I, I think really what defines those beer styles is a lean grain bill um, where there's not a lot of malt to interfere um, with hop character. Um, and a balanced bitterness, it, I, I should say as well, even though West Coast IPAs were kind of what was driving me, I'm not going to lie, I definitely, as as the years went by, also got some influence um through some of the, the more modern style IPAs as well. There's a lot about them I don't like, and that's why we don't brew them. Uh, but I certainly learned a thing or two about water profile and, um, and you know, uh, lower bitterness rates and things like that. Um, but I guess to answer your original question, yeah, I think you're talking about a lean, crisp grain bill that finishes with a noticeable bitterness. Um, and it's just got to be dry, you know. Um, I think uh, any beer that finishes sweet, or, or lingering in your mouth with any sort of malt residue is just absolutely not what we're looking to do. We're looking for the beer that you got to be careful that you can't drink too many. And that's not a business thing. It's just, we love drinking beer. And um, sure. we're looking for that one where you're constantly trying to take another sip. Um, and as far as specifics on how we went about doing that, yeah, I mean, I think I think when we first started, I was I was looking heavily at whatever was online at what some of those guys were doing, and also talking to some friends that I had made, and um, yeah, it was really just leaning out the malt bills was was the biggest thing at the time, and then experimenting with much higher hopping rates, and um, some of that was from learning from others, and some of that was we've got a seven barrel brew house, let's push the limit and see what happens. Right? Is it really going to be bad if we add more hops? Well, what if we add them all here instead of here? You know, so we started going down that heavy whirlpool late hop edition thing and pretty be, early on. You can be inefficient with a seven barrel system. Oh yeah. That, uh, I mean, we don't know, care about that. Especially given that everything is really sold over your bar that right. you're going to make what you need to make selling it for that. You know, and so the production constraints that might, you know, hit somebody that's trying to make a packaged beer that's got to hit a certain price point, you know, like you just don't have to pay attention to that. Sure. Sure. And I think we embrace that, uh, to a fault perhaps sometimes, <laughs> but, it's, um, but it's, deli- oh, it's a we, delicious fault. Yeah. We, we buy whatever ingredients we want and we use right. as many of them as we think will make the best beer possible. And, and that's that, you know, we don't really, um, right. And on the retail side, like you said, I mean, for us, the retail side's the bar. So if we're in the back looking at it and be like, man, this is, this is pretty sweet, but it would be awesome if we just did this. Well, maybe it's a dollar more a pint now for, for that one batch, you sure. know? Yeah. And it's not, it's different than, like you said, than having to hit the whole market. Sure. You mentioned leaning out the, the grain bill. What, what did, there are, of the brewers that I've talked to, especially in that West Coast IPA space, um, can tend to be all over the map. Chiro, yeah. Pilsner, um, mm-hmm. with you know specific kind of approaches. What is what do you tend towards? And I imagine you play across some of those things, and different beers are going to take different approaches. Um, what are some of you you know the core kind of approaches that you now take when uh, building a you know grain bill for West Coast IPA? Sure, I'll start by saying it's involved 
tremendously over the years and is continuing to evolve and will always continue to evolve sure. um, because we drink our beer and we think about how we can make it better. Um, and it's this dialogue, right? It's not just you. Right. It's also the friends that you, oh, yeah. you've you made and it's the beers that they make. And, and you know, as like any creative enterprise, there's a, it's, it's this larger dialogue where you make something and inspire someone else. They push it a little further. It comes back. You're like, where do I, you know, how do I take what I now know? And feed that back right. into what I make. Well, and a specific example is Mindbender, our year-round IPA. I mean, that was one of the four beers that we opened with. But Mindbender has changed immensely. And I think it was, was it last year or the year before, for the anniversary party, we were like, you know what would be cool? Let's go back and brew a batch one Mindbender. Sure. And then people can side by it, taste it with what Mindbender has become. We went back and dug out the very first brew sheet and looked at it and was like, I, I don't want to drink that, do you? I don't, don't want to make that. I don't want to have a whole batch of it sitting sure, around. You know, sure, it has sure. go- come a long way. Right, yeah. right. Let's let um, their nostalgia just lay there and <laughs> right. not, not ruin it for them. Um, but yeah, I mean. I know Russian River did that with their Blind Pig. Went back to like the early 90s recipe of Blind Pig and then just did a, a single batch of that. I mean, and watching that evolution is also fascinating. Yeah. And I think for us, it, it depends on exactly what kind of beer we're trying to make. I think that we look at session IPAs and and IPAs, double IPAs, pale ales, all a little bit differently. But in general, you know, you're starting with a with a good I, I like to blend base malts personally, yeah. um, for, for different reasons. Not always, but 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 quite a bit. So usually like a two row or a Pilsner blend is a a typical approach for a us. Fifty fifty blend or uh, is it depending on what Pilsner malt I'm using. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some that I find to be extremely lean and therefore um I can use quite a bit of those where there's some that I think are a little bit more bready and crackery and I'll, I'll hold back if I'm trying to achieve that. Sometimes. Okay. So what are just some depends that you find yourself leaning on, uh, you know, more often than yeah. others? I mean, so our silo, um, is just raw, um, Alex two row. So it's Canadian grown two row malt mm-hmm. from raw. Um, we don't have a lot of options as far as what we can put in that silo, but we yeah. do, we do like that malt. Um, but we always have a palette of Vireman, uh, premium Pilsner malt. So mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're light Pilsner malt basically, um, that we use, in a lot of beers. So those are the two base malts that we use the most. Um, we also have played quite a bit with uh, Gambrinus Pilsner malt. Mm-hmm. Um, we find we get a, a unique effect from using that malt. Um, what do you mean by unique? Uh, basically, we find that our beers attenuate significantly more than they would if we used a different base malt when we use that malt. And I'm not exactly sure it's why funny that you is. say that because mm-hmm. I was just having a conversation on our West Coast Pilsner uh, uh, roundtable panel where... Uh, Sam from Firestone Walker was saying exactly the same thing well, about that's that interesting. Cameron Pilsner. It's for real. Like when yeah. we yeah. when we've gone hundred percent with it, yeah. you get crazy attenuation. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's been a really fun tool, depending on the beer that you're trying to make. If you just want to go a little bit leaner than maybe what Turo would do, you add in, you know, 40, 50 percent. If you want to get real dry, especially yeah. West Coast Pilsners, yeah. I mean that's that's really straight out of our playbook, to be honest with you. Sure. Like we'll go sure. heavy on that malt and those kind of beers. Are there any other Pilsner malts or, or other two-row that you lean on? Um, we don't use a lot of other two-row. If we're using two-row, we pretty much just stick because, I mean, we yeah, do, we do have the silo. We might as yeah. well use it. Yeah. <laughs> um, We've used the Ida Pils a little bit, the Idaho. Yeah, that's a newer yeah. one that we like quite a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as, as you're building it, how do you start then, you know, thinking about, uh, or I should also say, and I guess this is going to obviously change based on whether we're talking about a smaller IPA or, a, you know, kind of a mainstream IPA or a double sure. IPA, you know, but what does dry mean to you out of that? Uh, I like, if I'm talking about a regular IPA, I want that to finish under two and above 1.5 typically. 
Really? Yeah. That mm-hmm. dry. Yeah, like yeah, a one eight is pretty simple. Yeah, one eight's money. Um, Sometimes a little lower. Two, yeah. yeah. Two, I'll begrudgingly accept it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it but, works but, better than we have. But with, with yeah. you know, we've been doing it for a minute. And so sure, sure. with what we're using, one eight is usually, usually if it doesn't hit one eight, it's not because it hit two. It's because it got to one seven or one six, which I'd much rather be at one six than two. Yeah. Yeah. Do you employ any particular mash strategies to achieve that level of dryness? Yeah. We mash everything pretty low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, we're usually around 147 and 148. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I think that really varies on system to system. Um, I feel like on this system, and I, I can't really explain why this is, but just from experience, I feel like we need to mash that low to get the kind of attenuation other people might be getting in the 150, 151 range. Hmm. And just that's just from like doing collabs with people and having them cock their heads sideways when I say, let's hit 147 with it or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's real low. Really, Mm -hmm. really low. Yeah. It works. Sure, sure. So naturally then, you know, if you were hitting those kinds of levels of dryness, the smoothness in your hop character is incredibly important that any kind of ragged or, uh, you know, rough bitterness in that expression is just going to stick out like a sore thumb and, and make those, you know, kind of ruin the the experience on that. You know, what does that now look like in terms of how you add hops through the hot side and then, uh, you know, and then we can move into fermentation and dry hopping. From sure. There. Right. I mean, true bittering additions are almost out, right? Yeah. If there's hops going in at the beginning, they're going in at the very beginning and you're going to do first word additions. And, that first word addition is calculated out to, to you know, to yeah. be your bittering addition. And then everything else comes in just later and later, right? Like first started this and not, are there some, not adding. Are there some ranges of IPA where you stick to first wort or there's somewhere, uh, you know, at, at certain sizes, you don't use that strategy. Is there some rule to the way that you all develop? I mean, so, so when you get smaller and smaller, right? Like, like our session IPA doesn't have a first word. Um, our pale ale doesn't. I guess you you started this conversation talking about sessions and parallels, and we've just been talking about West we've Coast just been IPAs. About in general. But yeah. also, I mean, we can kind of tie it in with what you were talking about with lower ABV, more drinkable beers. I mean, yeah, let's go, definitely go, talk about go that. back to Mindbender when we opened. That beer was seven and a half percent, and then it became seven one seven two, and now it's at six eight. And I really like it at six eight. Um, so even our our house IPA has gone lower. Yeah. When you get into to the, the pale ales and sessions, yeah, then those those first word additions don't happen. The bittering addition doesn't definitely doesn't happen. Yeah, because now you're backloading the kettle, and you know everything we learned in the '90s and 2000s about how you're not going to pick up bitterness with <laughs> five minute <laughs> sure, whirlpool sure, additions sure. Right. turns out was absolutely not true. Yeah. Well, they might not be, you know, measurable in that typical kind of way, but they're certainly perceptible. But they're certainly from, perceptible. Perceptible from a sensory That's what's more yeah. important because we have very few customers come in with lab gear. They're coming in with their tongues and, and <laughs> sure. you know, perceptive bitterness is, is what's important at the end of the day. If, if you were to... Perceived, uh, perceptive. Right. <laughs> if you were to, to uh, use a typical uh, utilization calculation for featherweight pale ale, um, kind of our house pale ale, I think it comes out at like 14 IBUs, but if you test it, it comes out at 50. So, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The first, the, 
the first few so times. So it even comes out tested at 50. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you are I actually I think it's 50. Achieving. Let's say 40, 42, 50. I can't remember yeah, what the exact right. number was. We've only done it a couple times. But yeah, no, 100%, you're getting more bitterness. Than, so we're not even talking about the difference in like sensory perception and measurable, mm-hmm. you know, isomerized alpha acids. Lab-tested IBUs. It is lab-tested. actual lab-tested IBUs. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Which was more of a, huh. which was more of like a confirmation for us than a shock because we knew right. these beers, they're not, we're drinking them. They're not 14 IBUs, you know, there's, there's no way they are. And then, you know, the lab gear confirms that. Sure. Sure. So then how do you, as you're developing a recipe, how do you account for that? Is it just, is it just mental shorthand or? Uh, yeah, it's experience. So okay, we, we no. use recipe, recipe formulation software, Sure, but we plug in our own utilization numbers based on, um, the, the tasting of the beers and also based on the few times that we've had them lab tested too. That's interesting. And, and obviously this is going to vary by system by system. You know, your system, you yeah. know, the same might not be, everyone's going to have to figure Hugely that out. Hugely variable. For their own. Hugely right. variable. I don't recommend anybody take our numbers. <laughs> yeah. all, we're also sure, in a very sure. specific situation. We have this pub style system that we're overworking. Right. And you're, you're sitting in front of the two people who have ever brewed on it here. Yeah. The only two people, the you only know, two people. so there's a lot of like stuff that's, it's not trial and error anymore only because it was trial and error nine years ago. Right. So, you know, then, so you're backloading all of this, you know, on a session IPA or pale ale, you know, what, what does that back end hot side hopping look like? Um, so session IPA for us, the only two hop additions are 10 minute and whirlpool. Uh, that's it. And they're pretty modest. They're not that big. Um, and it's it's because those beers are so small. And mm-hmm. as, as you mentioned, you got to be really careful. I think even just about how much vegetable matter you have in there. Yeah. And, and then you can really, if you get too heavy, it can really start to exploit the things about that beer that are already a little dangerous as far as, you know, astringency and bitterness and things like that just from the grain bill. Right. Um, so yeah. Do you, are you finding that you're using more, uh, you know, say like, you know, cryo or concentrated hot product for those kinds of beers in order to overcome some of that vegetal, uh, you know, mass? So we've been playing with that a little bit more recently. Um, but honestly, just because of hot contracts alone, we've pretty much stuck to T90s until mm-hmm. the last couple of years. And it's been kind of a slow, uh, we're a little late to the party, basically, when it comes to right. some of the newer hot products. We have used them and we're continuing to use them now. Yeah. Um, but I do think you can achieve, well, we were able to achieve that with our session IPA, our paleo was all T90s. Um, so we didn't have to go down that road in order to get where we wanted to get. Uh, I think that's a good strategy, though. And those still are. The session and the pale are still T90s. When any of the new stuff, you know, any cryos or any, like, you know, incognito style mm-hmm. products come Flowable in. products, yeah. That's going into Project Alpha, which okay. is our West Coast IPA series. An experimental series. It's, where just you- a, it's just an outlet for us to play um, without changing MindBender, although... Every time MindMender has changed, a lot of that has come from something we learned mm-hmm. from a, from a, from Project Alpha, you know? Right, right. Uh, but yeah, the session and the pale have stayed in T90s the whole time. Well, what is the, how do you tend to divide the hop side, hot side hops then between that 10 minute and uh, Whirlpool edition? Whirlpool's bigger. Um, okay. Usually, I would say double the size, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say Whirlpool's probably double that 10-minute edition. Do you drop um, temp at all for that Whirlpool? or No, we played with it, but we don't do it consistently. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is an, an equipment restraint or constraint as much as, as anything. You know, <laughs> sure. if, like, 
Right. Yeah. You're on a pub style system. Pub style system. Yeah. It, it, almost everything we do on this system is something it was not designed to do. <laughs> no, nobody <laughs> yeah, built this sure. system to make pilsners and Mexican lagers. You know. Hey, in the, in the hands of the right, uh, the right <laughs> brewers, you can do anything on anything. Well, right? thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, up to a point, I guess. And we've just found that I think that with some of those more delicate grain bills, particularly when you start talking about session IPA, you can achieve just as much by just chilling out a little bit on the the hot side hops, you know, and not just not going crazy with it. I think is um, as effective, if not more effective, than let's say dropping your temp down to 180 and throwing more hops in there. At least that's been my experience. Yeah. Just, mm-hmm. just dialing it down now, yeah. you know, when it comes to that, are there, especially on that session and, you know, pale ale kind of side, are there specific hops that you find, you know, play better than others in that world that, uh, you know, I mean, we all know that all hops are not the same, you know, that, 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 you know, even you can't just mathematically substitute one for another. They have different physical properties at times and uh, can impact those things and certainly have different flavor expressions in terms of how, you know, they convey in a smooth way. Are there some, I mean, one that comes to mind, it's, it's always a good thing for this brewery when Hutch and I both get equally stoked at the same time, immediately about something. And uh, when we first learned about cashmere, and first got some samples that, I mean, just as an example, this was this super cool, punchy, all this fruit, you know, yeah, great yeah. aroma, all this stuff, but really low alpha. And so immediately we see that happen. We're like, oh, we can put a shitload of it in the whirlpool. Yeah. You know? Um, so that's not tell Stan Hieronymus that he's on a mission against cashmere now. Well, <laughs> well, there, I'll there's tell you, a sustainability issue I'll, that comes with that. But so, yeah. so there's a few. So things. this is why it's yeah, a weird. Yeah. This is why it's a weird example. It's an, it, it's an example from the hop itself. The fact that you have all right, that, right? Uh, you know, all that flavor and aroma, everything yep, going yep. on with the low alpha. Having said that, that hop is not in our session. It's not in our pail. It's not in my mender. It's sure, rarely sure. in alpha. We actually rarely used it in the last couple of years. But that was a specific yeah. hop that came to mind as far as what, you know, that's a great hop for that Whirlpool edition or, right. or any hop that brings both of those things to the table. Sure. Yeah. I, I think any, any of your harsher kind of known hops, you know, even like a – a hop like Idaho 7 I love has a Whirlpool hop in some beers, but I don't think I'd use it in my session IPA. You yeah. Know, I think it would stand out too much. I think you'd get too much resin out of it, and I don't think you want that on the hot side. What are, what are your favorite hot side uh, hops? Now, and again, you know, this can differ, and we can talk about how that differs from the cold side hops also because I think it's interesting right. that you can find different use cases on both sure. of those edges. Sure. Um yeah, I mean it's a lot, it's a lot of the classics to be honest with you. You sure. know, uh, we use a lot of mosaic. We use um, decent amount of citra. Sure. Um, Stratas definitely come in mm. to play a lot. You so know? that's a really fun whirlpool hop, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, th- those are the- and then other ones are specific to the beers. I mean, there's there's still certain beers that have big Simcoe whirlpool yeah. editions. Oh yeah. Um, there's still Amarillo involved. You know, uh, a lot of it really for us to, depends on the condition of our hops and the crop and the lot and all that, you know, we found that one hop worked perfectly a couple of years ago and now we hate it, you know, and it's just variability in agricultural product, you know, and um, that's been a big one. Fascinating. Let's talk a little bit more about that. But first, ABS Commercial is a full service brewery outfitter proud to offer brew houses, tanks, and small parts to brewers across the country. They stock equipment ranging from three barrels to 90 barrels and offer custom designed equipment up to 900 barrels. Contact one of their brewery consultants today at sales at abs-commercial.com. 
to discuss your brewery project. ABS commercial, we are brewers. Also, craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. Picked at the peak of ripeness, the fruit is pureed and frozen for optimal fresh flavor and color. But don't just take their word for it. Experience flavor firsthand by curating your own complimentary sample box at perfectpuree.com slash beer. That's perfectpuree, P-U-R-E-E dot com forward slash beer. Samples are complimentary for brewing professionals only. Well, let's talk a little bit about this kind of, you know, variation and how some of that, uh, you know, year to year or multi-year kind of shifts in some of these hops kind of lead to some of the ways that you adjust and develop. And and I'm saying that because, I mean, we're still in hop selection season. You guys were earlier this week out, you know, doing some hop selection last week. You know, I mean, this is the, the season where we're all into this. We were just up in Yakima a couple weeks ago. Um, but talk to me about how, you know, what you've seen on some of those varieties that you have in the past leaned on and some of the ways that, uh, you know, now rubbing, smelling, tasting, you know, some of these hops has changed the way that you use it. And how then, again, when you're selecting something for a certain beer now, uh, you get impacted by that the, the kind of the sensory approach to the individual hops from that specific crop year. Sure. Um, I'll start by prefacing this with the fact that we've never done hop selection until this year. Oh, okay. Um, and it was wonderful to have that opportunity. I mean, you guys are a very small brewery. It's not like you're ordering tons yeah. and tons of hops and getting it, to that. Exactly. So we've kind of had to uh, figure that out. Yeah. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. But um, we're, in a weird, we're in a weird space. We use a lot more hops like per year sure. than breweries that are even a little bigger than us, but not enough to go do selection every year. You co-op it then, or uh, have you just yeah. achieved a level where some of the hop vendors are willing to to tuck you in? I'd prefer to just not go into detail on that, to be honest <laughs> sure, with you. Sure, we figured sure. out a way. Hey, Let's just put it fantastic, that way. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what we've noticed in the past is just huge, huge variation yeah. across hop varieties to the point where we've got solid recipes built and have had to completely change them. And also just figure out uses for these hops that we've contracted that we really don't like, you know? Um, And uh, that's been a massive undertaking for us. And um, it is wild to think about how different these can be. You know, I had a conversation with Tom Shellhammer from OSU, you know, uh, last month. And, you know, the idea that the same variety and grown in Washington and and Oregon could be as different as the difference between Cascade and Mosaic grown in one of those states in terms of, I mean, you know, field to field even, not right, even right. Not, not even state to state. I mean, the idea of thinking about it just as variety, you know, I mean, we've, we've got to kind of almost put that past us. Yeah. Well, and over the years of us, you know, just contracting out for a specific poundage and we get what we get, it, it cracks me up sometimes to think about people doing selection. They rub and they smell and they're like, oh, I really like the grapefruit, but man, there's a lot of onion and chive. Well, those are ours. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the ones we're going to end up with, you know? <laughs> I, I, I love those dank beers, though. Yeah. <laughs> so this year in selecting, what, what have you found and how has that uh, impacted, again, some of what, uh, what you hope to end up with in your hop selection this year? Yeah. I mean, the proof will be in the pudding next year, I guess, when we're making these beers. But, um, you know, just, just really trying to, trying to deselect 
hops that have traits that we don't want is the yeah, number one priority. Negative selection. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was the strategy. And then, you know, the second tier of that strategy was to find the most potent hops that had all the flavors that weren't offensive, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was pretty much, that's the main way we approached it. And, um, you know, there's some, it, it actually was, it was really fun. It was really interesting. And, and we did find, I found that to be easier than I anticipated it would be. As far as how it translates to the final beer, I don't want to pretend that my first time at selection is going to result in me being excellent at selecting hops because sure. I might not be. But um, but as far as going through that process, um, it was pretty validating. And um, we found that it was easy to to uh, not select the hops that, that had the qualities that we were afraid they might have in certain varieties. What do you tend to steer away from and what do you, what do you find really attractive? Yeah, I mean, I think intense uh, onion garlic is, is too much. Sure. Um, I think that, that a low level of that in certain hop varieties is just fine. And it does, it does bring the dank, which is important. Um, but in hops that you're using in a lot of different beers, specifically for other qualities, <laughs> such as tropical fruit and citrus, right. um, you know, you don't want that, that super heavy onion garlic thing always being present in those beers. You can select a different hop to add that component if you want to dank up a particular beer. And that's strategy we we use here all the time, right? Is is picking some old school dank hop to just add in at a small percentage and um, and achieve that overall power punch, but mixed in with hops that are primarily bringing up, you know, the pineapple, the lemon lime and all that. So Sure. Right. And if we end up getting a lot that is, you know, too savory really resinous maybe we find something that's got a lot of punchy orange rind there's always a black ipa to put it in you know <laughs> sure sure and i guess we should note that you know for the, the the last you know nine years of the brewery you've been making these beers that have certainly been moving the needle without selecting hops you know and and we see that we talk a lot on the podcast about the importance of selecting hops but you also see folks like burke gilman winning Alpha King and JBF Golds while not selecting hops. Like, you know, there are, both of these can be ways to get there. You've got to be really good to do that. Um, and clearly you guys are. Uh, you know, when, you're, you, when you have been using those uh, not selected lots, what does that strategy look like? Uh, you know, beer to beer, how do you start evaluating those kinds of things and figuring out, hey, you know, this is what I do want to use. And this is what I, I might want to steer away from, you know, where then again, the quality of that individual bag of hops might actually impact what, what the recipe is. It's not driven by the idea of the recipe first. It's a, driven by right. the flavor you're hoping to achieve. Yeah. I mean, I think it starts for us and I hope I'm answering the question correctly, but it starts for us by, by drinking the beers that we've made with those hops sure. and suddenly realizing, oh man, these mosaics are bringing a little more dank than we wanted them to. You know, this is it's quite a bit more savory. Um, and then balancing that with our impressions from from some of the other varieties, and then just adjusting, you know, flavor profiles basically, right? I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean that's it's once again we keep, we we keep coming back to being small, but being small helps in in so many ways. That you're looking at the QC team and QA team too. You know, so we're not just getting beers ready to sell by card volumes and everything else. Sure. It's every bit of what do you think of this batch versus the last batch? This is that new lot of mosaics and picking that apart. And that may end up being an adjustment of proportions and percentages 
Um, or occasionally, if if it's a certain lot that we got a certain year, it may end up with a sub out, and that hop might end up working better in a different beer, and a different hop might end up working better in this beer, or you, in a different brewery, or in a, di- or, or, or <laughs> sure. a different brewery sometimes. Sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. How much of this now? You know, you also are clearly considering time and time of year in the overall equation, how much gets then driven by beers that you're brewing and, you know, throughout the year where you find a specific lot that you have, you're like, this, this is the lot I'm going to throw back in the cooler and save for, you know, that month in July when we're brewing our GABF submissions, because this is going to be the thing Uh, and how, or, you know, does that impact? I I wish we could be that picky. I mean, with our contracts, they are what they are. So the new, the new lot that we get, Every year, yeah, yeah. that's the GABF lot for that hey, year. Hey, yeah. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, that's true. And um, you know, you mentioned some some brewers that don't do selection still being successful with hoppy beers, and and us having that same experience. And it's true, and I think that's just sort of that's a microcosm for brewing in general, right? I mean, you kind of have to work with what you have. Sure. Um, you know, some people have the luxury of designing their dream brewery or whatever, but most people don't, and most people are working with some aspect of their brewery that is not ideal, and. I think that that's, you know, that is the art of brewing, right? It's just figuring out, well, this is what I've got and I've got to make delicious beer somehow. So I'm going to tweak this. I'm going to tweak this. And same thing with ingredients. Um, Don't get me wrong. I'm really looking forward to having some ingredients that I chose. Uh, But that being said, you know, we're not afraid to to switch out recipes in, in house beers. They don't stay the same if they're not drinking the same and they don't stay the same if we're, if we feel like they need to be evolved. Um, one thing that has surprised a lot of people, um, we are constantly changing our beers, including those that have been successful in competition. Yeah, We've had beers that have won gold medals that we have changed significantly. Really? Almost completely. And they've won again after that I too. Mean, so here's, um, here's an anecdote just from the last year. Our session IPA hit gold at JBF, and then we earned it into World Beer Cup in the Twin Cities, and it hit gold there. And so my mom called me, and she's like, see, that just goes to show. N- never change that beer. And I was like, Mom, actually, that beer was completely – it's a whole <laughs> it's a whole new malt bill. It's a whole different beer than it was between GBF and World Beer Cup. And I think the, the takeaway is the opposite. Don't rest on your laurels. Yeah. Keep pushing. Keep changing. I mean, it can always be a little better, right? That's a dangerous thing, though, right? I mean, you've got expectations from your customers, and I mean, it's risky. But I think he and I have been brewing beer together for for long enough that we know it's not going to be bad, right? It's 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 still going to be a good beer, and because because a lot of these tweaks, some of them are so minute that nobody's picking up on them except for us well some of them are big and people don't pick up on them and then some of them are big and people don't pick up on them we've done a whole hop swap outs in beers where we've debated all right we're gonna totally take these two hops out and put these other two hops in across the board yeah so do we do the whirlpool in this batch and then do the dry hop next batch do we the dry hop this batch and the whirlpool next batch or do we just do it all at once you do it all at once and it's almost disappointing that nobody notices. <laughs> but no, I mean, our, our friends that come in here, our, right. our, you know, brewer, brewer, friends, brewers, or, brewer yeah. friends that come in here notice. But even our, you know, five-day-a-week regulars don't really pick up on it. That being said, the only motivation for doing this for us is when we are drinking our beer and saying it could be better, yeah. right? That, right? That's it. Right. Um, we don't change critics, them for any right. other reason, right? Um, and so that's him and I being like, you know, 
I just feel like, you know, Trump hands is could just be tasting like a little fuller or whatever. Like, what if we did this instead of this? Because it's an ingredient that no. we've messed with for the last years. And, and we're like, we got to, you got to keep evolving, right? Because we keep learning and we do all these um, experimental projects for a reason. And if it, the, the point of that is that hopefully it leads us just to being better brewers, right? And you got to apply that to beers, even beers that have, that you've had around for years, you know? I mean, one of the biggest uh, changes that we made to one of our year round beers was a couple of years ago with our pale ale. And we were we were done for the day. We were out in the tap room. We were both sitting down having beers. One of us is having a session IPA. One of us is having a Pilsner. And then, you know, we get one more beer before we head home. And the other one who had the sessions now having the pills and vice versa, whatever. Somehow it gets to the conversation of when's the last time you had a pail? And we realized that neither of us had had one in a while. I mean, we'd QC them and, and sure. you know, nothing hits the wall without tasting it. But then once it's at the wall, it's not what I'm drinking for my shift beer after work, right? And so that just turned into what the hell kind of pale ale are we brewing where the brewers don't want to drink it? Hmm. And so we went back to the drawing board um, and we completely a- rewrote it. And it's, I think it's great now. Um, and it, what was that, a two or three time medal winner or two at that point? Right. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, when it, if you want to, you know, bring it full circle to that. Yeah. Af- after we did do that full rewrite of it, and we were like, "Dude, this is I'm I'm really liking it now." We were both like, "You know what? Let's enter it. We haven't entered it in a couple of years." So we entered it, and it hit gold. That's amazing. So you know, so between a GABF gold and a World Beer Cup gold, how many brews sit between that? How you know what's that iteration process over that? It's not. It's not just the very next one we nail it. I mean, there's you guys have a small system. You can actually brew it a few times. Oh yeah, over that and kind of. We had a little more time this year because with everything being staggered, CBC was in May instead of March, so that bought us at least (laughs) at least one more in there. I don't know how many think we're in between. For some beers, it's one more time. For some beers, it's zero, and for some, it's probably three or four. Right? Yeah, Yeah. some at zero. I mean, we. We were talking about the top wall when you walked in here. Yeah. You know, our, our top wall suffers around these festivals and competition sure, sure. seasons because we're having to do stuff we normally wouldn't do, brewing beers on top of beers that, you know, right. that would normally be spaced out a little more. Or occasionally, if we've decided we're going to enter so many beers, you got we have to look at it and be like, what's the beer that we're okay with being the oldest out of this lineup, right? I'm, yeah. Obviously, I'm much you know, more comfortable sending a robust porter or a vena lager that's been done for a little bit than an IPA. Sure. You know, that makes sense. Because we're not big enough to just have six fresh batches all ready to go. Sure. Sure. Just grab one off the canning line, you know? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's dial back and talk a little bit about uh, fermentation and cold side now, Mm because that's, we we talked about hop side, we got to the whirlpool. Um, and I love thinking about all these in linear brewing processes, sure. just just moving right through, uh, even with some of our little side trips on here, which have been wild and fascinating too. Um, what is what does that cold side look like for you, especially with these you know this IPA focus? Are you, I imagine you're using a typical West Coast uh, yeast for this, some Chico strain? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 We use a couple different variations on that same exact strain. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Just, Why a couple different variations? Um, because I feel like they're pretty pretty damn consistent regardless and sometimes like we always keep a little bit of dry yeast on hand in case oh yeah in case the ordering slash harvesting didn't work out or whatever um so that gets used you know fairly regularly and then we also order from a local 
local yeast company as well. So, sure. A lot sure. of that just has so to BSI or um, Inland Island? Uh, we're currently using Propagate, but we also oh, use yeah. Inland Island for some stuff as well. Cool. A lot of it has to do with scheduling as much as anything. Um, a lot of the scheduling is on the fly. The hops are in-house. The main malts that we use are in-house. Sometimes there's a day where both of us are in the brewery. One of us is transferring a beer, and we're like, what do we want to brew into this tank (laughs) tomorrow or the next day, you know? It's such a, a, you know, a corporate driven strategy like that to to like do all of your demand planning and uh, and all of your, uh, your ordering and everything else. I've confessed forever. I'm a terrible planner. It is what it is. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, the strategy's working for you so far. So, uh, you know, then on that cold side, you know, you go through a you know pretty typical fermentation. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't know that the cold side is really uh, is really that exciting, right? It's a typical fermentation with knocking out in the you know upper to mid sixties Fahrenheit, and then fermenting in the upper sixties Fahrenheit, and then kind of letting them go up a little bit at the end to make sure everything sure. finishes out, and then that's really it. You know, where does dry hopping fit into that then? So that has, uh, now, are you, that has doing, changed a little bit. You're doing dry hopping. Dry hopping now is at terminal. At pretty, term, pretty, okay. Mostly. I mean, obviously we're still playing with everything. Sure. Like, like that's the whole point of all this. Sometimes wort goes into a tank that already has hops in it. Right. But for the most part, dry hopping is at terminal. Um, we have played endlessly with that. Do you dry hop? Is it, is it four days, five days, six days? Do you, yeah. do you recircuit? Do you bubble it? When do you recircuit? When do you bubble it? Do you dump it? When, you know, this, this and that. Um, it's ended up pretty, pretty straightforward. Dry hopping wanna, at terminal and go ahead. I'm sorry. One of the main reasons we dry hop at terminal as opposed to like a little bit earlier than that is, is yeast harvesting. Mm-hmm. Right. We make mostly IPAs, right, you know, right. and so we need to be able to harvest that yeast and sure. we're, not, we're not doing that if we've already dry hopped the beer. So that's, that's a big, <clears throat> I mean, that's probably the defining factor yeah, for, sure. that, for that, you know, unless we want to so make there a beer is with a production concern here. Damn it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only, uh, the, sure. you found it. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It out. There it is. Yeah. But, but even then, if we don't pull it off, well, there's dry yeast in the cooler. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. So we will, yeah, we'll typically dry hop at terminal gravity and um, then usually dry hop for about four days uh, yeah. to do a, a small recirc and crash the beer. We also played with splitting that dry hop up, mm-hmm. you know. Two stage. Um, didn't really see, you know. Yeah. Too many immense benefits. The biggest benefit of double dry hopping, as far as I'm concerned, is if you're trying to figure out how you want the beer to taste and smell and you do the first dry hop, right. then you can still make changes. And to, right. um, so that's a good point. If, if we do do that these days, it's exactly for that reason. Mm-hmm. We'll do it with a project alpha and be like, well, let's put this in first, right. see where we think it, it's at. And do we want to dink it up? Does it need more tropical? Does, you know, once, you a, make, once, make, once, make, once again, uh, on the fly. Sure, sure. Well, you know, and with the seven barrel brew house and, you know, small tanks, you're not necessarily facing the same kind of, you know, saturation and, you know, mix and extraction issues that, right. you know, somebody brewing on, right. you know, much, much larger tanks and much larger batches might be facing. Just the mechanics, the sheer, you know, uh, fluid mechanics of that and are going to be different. And you're flipping through through the batches because you're brewing these kind of beers on a seven barrel system. You're shooting for five. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So hop creep, obviously, not going to be a huge issue for you at this kind of batch size? Yeah, not necessarily. Yeah? No, we've definitely uh, we've definitely had our experiences with mm-hmm. it. And um, we, in many cases, have extended 
dry hop a little bit. Um, and then we've also uh, started using ALDC on those beers as well mm. um, because now it hit us pretty good. And it's only been in the last like year or so and we haven't really yeah. changed that much. Um, so I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on that. Uh, my, my current theory is just that they're killing at lower temperatures to sure. try to get higher oils and maybe not killing everything off. But that's, I'd that's say that's something we've, to. that's something we've contended with for sure in the last I mean, there's that, year or two. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. a lot of forced um, detests yeah. prior to crash to make sure that it that it cleaned up and that nothing started back up. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine that's really – it's it, mostly focused on not creating diacetyl and off flavors in those finished beers. Totally. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's mm-hmm. – yeah. Yeah, hop creep leading diacetyl at our size is m- pretty much right. the entire concern. When it comes to dry hop, you know, from a, a mechanical standpoint, are there some hops that, uh, you know, you have to pay more close attention to when you're dry hopping with them? Are, or are there some that uh, tend to be a little, uh, you know, easier and carefree? That's a separate question, obviously, than the aesthetic choice of what they're going to contribute to flavor. But from a, a mechanical standpoint, do some work differently than others there? I think so. Um, I'm not, I can't answer that with like, perfect scientific results as far as we try this or try that. I I think so. I think so. Um, We, once we, this started happening a couple times, we got super aggressive (laughs) with our procedures as far as trying to eliminate it. Yeah. Um, So it probably would have, you know, we'd probably know a little bit better had we played around a little bit more, but I didn't feel like playing around with diacetyl beer that much. Sure, sure. (laughs) Also, I think yes. I think yes. Also, once we and all of our peers you know, learned that ALDC does do what it's supposed to do. Right. Not going to be in a situation where it's like, well, we'll, AL, we'll put ALDC in this beer, but we haven't had as many problems with Stratus, so we won't put it in that. No, it's going, it's going in. <laughs> you <laughs> know, guaranteed. it's, it's sure, not, it's sure. not very much. It's a small amount and it does what it's supposed to. And I don't know if we've had that many big issues since we realized None. that, yeah, yeah, that putting it into the dry hop, adding it with the dry hop is worth it. Yeah. Let's talk about, you know, hop selection for dry hop versus hot side. You know, obviously, uh, you know, certain hops work differently in different kinds of contexts, which, uh, you know, and of course you make a whole bunch of different beers. And so some of those things are going to change from beer to beer. Uh, You know, are there some variations, you know, in that kind of dry hop approach, Um, you know, certain hops that you find work better at lower ABVs versus higher ABVs? And uh, how do you tend to, you know, write hops into recipes based on, uh, you know, where, where that beer is going to end in terms of, uh, you know, final, uh, gravity. Sure. I mean, as far as hot side versus cold side hop choices. Yeah. I mean, we tend to, we've gravitated recently to putting Simcoe as more of a hot side hop than a, than a dry hop. Yeah. But I think, I think that's particular to our Simcoes. Yeah. Uh, they tend to get, uh, they tend to get pretty catty, at least yeah. a lot that we've been dealing with. Yeah. Um, so we found that using them on the hot side is a little bit, a, a better use of that hop, for example. So again, we're just getting back to the, the different lots and all that. Sure. Um, and that's actually, that was, that's a perfect example of the way we were talking about that we'll adjust recipes for year round beers because of lot to lot. Yeah. You know, because that is a, one of the main hops in our year round IPA and we did exactly what Hutch just said. It was coming off really catty, you know, at the finished beer was. And so we, I don't even know if we changed the overall pounds per barrel. I think we kept the pounds per barrel the same, but we just flipped the usages and Mosaic went somewhere else where it wasn't. And Simcoe went earlier than it had been. And it, it changed, you know, changed the beer the way that we wanted it. 
I like Idaho 7 in the Whirlpool. I don't love that as a dry hop. Yeah. Um, so that's one that we specifically use kind of only on the hot side now, I would say. Um, I feel like your citrus and mosaics and stuff go pretty well either way, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And using- well, I, I can't think of a, wor- of a dry hop specific varietal that we only put in the dry hop. Like I can think of, like he said, I, I, Idaho 7 with pretty much only kettle, but yeah. the opposite I can't really think of. Yeah, usually only if we're trying to kind of save it for the dry hop and then using more like those potent. <laughs> that's u- that's hops, usually yeah, what it yeah. comes down to again is our size. It's like, well, we only have two bags of this, so let's save it for the dry hop. <laughs> we'll find something else for the kettle, and th- these are going in the dry hop. Sure, sure. Well, um, maybe let's zoom out here as we uh, as we get on in time, and uh, maybe think about like in terms of building beers of excellence beers that your peers you know because these are peer judged competitions that you all are finding success in what do you think are some of the key features for building beers that are truly excellent that truly rise above and that stand out in this kind of you know amongst peers amongst many great beers um you know what are some of those things that you think drive that kind of perception i mean i I'd, I'd say to start off we we it comes from us from the opposite right we're not brewing beers for competition when competition time comes we're asking ourselves what are our beers that have the best chances you know um and that even gets down to stylistically within those competitions like we don't enter the american ipa category usually because they don't the judges tend to not like the stripped down West Coast IPAs um, that we make. Yeah, I think honestly, I think to look at your bigger picture, like as far as across the board, trying to make beers that that are considered to be excellent examples or whatever. Um, I, I think that it we we are lucky that there's only two of us, and that both of us have relentless quality control. Uh, standards and practices, meaning we're drinking all these beers all the time and we're constantly picking them apart. I'm sure everybody does that maybe, but I don't know. I don't know how many breweries have the opportunity to have the only two decision makers constantly involved in that process and and doing it. Two two brewers with two decades of experience who've worked together and are finally tuned in their interactions yeah. relationship with each other to also know each other's blind spots and also oh, yeah. mm-hmm. be able to predict, you know, yep. you know, like there's right. I, yeah. you, you're right. Then that may not exist in many other places. Yeah. And we really, I mean, we, we do, we put the work in, man, we taste these beers and we drink these beers a lot, you know, and I'm, we're both, we're, we're so yeah. picky, you know, it's that if you, if I'm, even if I take a beer home and I'm just trying to enjoy it, yeah, good luck with that. Right. Because I'm going to immediately find <laughs> yeah, sure. something, <laughs> right, immediately right, find something right. that could be better, you know? And so those conversations are happening constantly. Like I can't emphasize that enough, like all the time. And that, that's goes back to us kind of changing all those beers, regardless of competition and all that. So I think there's that. I think there's I think the basics, you know, I think we've got our procedures down pretty well. I think we're paying attention to sure. fermentation. Right. I think we're paying attention to, to cleanliness. Um, and I think our recipe formulation is, is solid, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I just reiterate that. Like when I have this conversation with other brewers, I oftentimes use a, a John Lennon quote, which is when he was talking about how he would, he would never listen to Beatles albums because all he would hear was the mistakes. And 
It's not that bad. I don't drink one of our beers, and all I find is the mistakes. I do. Um, but he does. He does, yeah. <laughs> um, but they're there. There's just always room to make it better. I I completely feel you. I actually have to listen to every one of these podcast episodes that I record before we release them and do a second round edit, and all I hear is my mistakes. <laughs> right. Every single time. I, but I think that's the, you know, that's the curse and but, also I mean, the gift of, think, a, of creative people, but, right? That you are your own worst your own worst critic. I was just going to say this. I think this is across the board of any art that you're creating, whether you are a brewer or a chef or a musician or an author, like at a certain point, the good, the, the, the awesome thing about brewing beer versus being a musician or an author, like once the book gets published, once the record gets cut and pressed, that's it. That's it. You're done. Like you, that's why he couldn't listen to it anymore. Cause all he heard was the mistakes. Cause he couldn't change them well, this batch is going to be gone and we're brewing another one. And that just perpetually happens over. We have the perpetual ability and freedom to tweak and tweak and tweak and change and change and change. And we do. And we do. <laughs> that just gave me goosebumps. And that is a great place to bring this to a close. G&D's microchannel condensers are highly efficient and use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers. Filled like a pro with ProFill can fillers from ProBrew. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices and order quantities catered to craft. ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery outfitter serving brewers across the country. And craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. Of course, if you enjoyed this episode, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. Let us know this content matters to you. We're a week out from uh, we're recording this a week out from when this issue uh, this episode will air but uh, hey if you were interested in buying tickets to our brewers retreat uh, go to brewersretreat.com right now uh we i think it's six tickets right now as we're recording this still available for that so buy them if you if they are still available by the time this episode airs if you were even interested in going to that um hutch jonathan if people want to learn more about cannibal creek where do they where do they find more about you in the tap room <laughs> right here in Golden, Colorado, right here in where Golden we're Colorado. Right That's the best answer. Yep. Um, obviously, website cannibalcreekbrewing.com. Um, we're slowly improving our social media presence uh, on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I'm looking forward to the Great American Beer Festival being back in Denver this year. It's something that I've missed. I know that uh, you know festivals in general. Brewers tend to have a mixed perception of that. Some love them, some hate them. I love them. I love I love great the Great American Beer Festival. I love the energy that comes to Denver for that. I love all of our friends and brewers coming in from around the country for this. I mean, I'm just selfish in that regard because I'm right here up in Fort Collins and, and can get here very easily. It's it's one of the great events in beer. And uh, yeah, thank you all for joining me on the podcast. Uh, cheers. All right. Thanks cheers, for having man. us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.